Hey, welcome everybody. This is Atypical Parenting and I'm Dawn Tree. We're very lucky today we have an expert in pharmacology, Dr. Sabu Mubashar. And Dr. Mubashar is a colleague of mine that I've worked with for many years and I'm so, so grateful to him for coming on today and sharing a little bit of his expertise. The fact that we're going to get the opportunity to pick his brain for about 30 minutes here is like amazing. So don't take it for granted, pay attention, and we're going to learn so much. Welcome, Dr. Mubashar. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about what makes you particularly well-suited to have this discussion on pharmacology, psychopharmacology, and autism today? So my background is I'm a trained and board-certified adult, child, and adolescent psychiatrist. My background fellowship training is also in psychopharmacology. And the patient population that you're talking about, I've been working with them for about 20 plus years. I am the medical director of an inpatient unit, which primarily manages kids on the autism spectrum with behavioral problems. And I've also been the consultant psychiatrist for the last 15 years for the largest residential treatment facility in Connecticut for kids on the spectrum. Wow, wow. So, Let's just dive right in. When you're talking to parents who are trying to understand this whole piece of should they or shouldn't they medicate their child, what do you think are the most important things parents need to know? I think if I can step back, sort of my take on all of this just applies to psychiatry or medicine in general. I think very few people wake up every morning very excited to see their doctor, whether it's for hypertension or strep throat or need for surgery or depression, or psychosis, and whatnot, right? So utilization of medicine in general, historically, has always been in context of symptom-driven. I think it's only in the last 40, 50 years that we have started talking about preventive care. But sort of preventive care is larger than physicians, right? Preventive care is about individuals, about education, about sort of you know, physicians play a small role, but preventive care is larger than that. When it comes to sort of a more typical physician-client relationship or physician-patient relationship, you go to a doctor because there is a problem. And this is no different for psychiatry, actually even more so for psychiatry, because, you know, although we've come a long way in mental illness and our understanding and the stigma around mental illness, Having said that, nobody would deny that compared to, say, having a leukemia diagnosis or hypertension diagnosis, uh, the mental illness stigma is still unfortunately alive and well. We, within medicine in general, uh, something that gets attributed to mental health particularly, but I think if you piece apart the detail, talk a lot about sort of, well, you know, we don't know what's what and we don't know what's causing what. And I say this to people, there are two things to keep in mind. Like, One is we still do not clearly understand what causes hypertension, let alone autism and major depression. And we still do not clearly understand why one person who's obese will develop diabetes and another person who's obese will not, right? We have some inclination, but we don't understand the disease process in most medicine, you know, in a way that we should understand it. And mental illness is no different. So having that information in the background, I think the thing that I want to talk about 
is that within mental health, the premise of treatment is sort of what one very eminent psychiatrist, Dr. Nessie, is a big proponent of evolutionary psychiatry, talks about VSAD, which is viewing symptoms as disease. So if you, as a mental health provider yourself, look at diagnoses and diagnostic categories, these are nothing but collection of symptoms, right? And when you go to a mental health provider, you are looking for symptom alleviation. Now move on to the more specifics of the diagnosis that we're here to talk about, right? There are some core features to autism, the lack of social reciprocity, you know, all the things that everybody is very familiar with, right? But when you go to a mental health provider, particularly somebody for medications, right, you're not expecting that I will be able to put them on the medication that will make their eye contact or their social awareness better, right? Right. You're going for what we call externalizing symptoms or even internalizing symptoms. Like usually kids with autism who are presenting with behavioral problems kids with autism who are presenting with a lot of anxiety, kids with autism who are presenting with, say, mood swings or depression or sleep problems or sometimes cognitive problems not limited to focus and attentional problems and impulsivity. So this was my very long-winded way of saying that there is the diagnosis autism and then there are symptoms that come out of the diagnosis, which is no different than, say, somebody struggling with major depression. Somebody with major depression will have low mood, but not everybody will have poor sleep and poor appetite. Right. That's a great analogy. Not everybody will be suicidal. But having said that, it's not a uniform presentation, Is I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I think when you keep that context in mind, it makes the conversation about medication much easier. Because in that way, when you as a parent or even as a client yourself are having a pharmacological or or medication conversation with your provider, the conversation and the goals of treatment are very realistic. You're not there because you think that this medication is going to make my child's autism better. Right. You're here for symptomatic management. So I wanted to make sure that we sort of have that groundwork as the basis of this conversation. The other thing that I say to people is that in general, when you're talking about people, particularly with autistic disorder, who have symptomatic difficulties, these medications are, again, not a cure. They will help but they will not fix the problem, even the symptomatic piece as well. Right. But then I think I do remind people that when you have high blood pressure, your antihypertensive does not fix your hypertension. It manages your hypertension. When you're on insulin for 30, 40 years with the diagnosis of diabetes, insulin is not curing your diabetes. Actually, if in modern medicine, outside of infectious diseases, there's very few things that we cure. It's mostly things that we manage on an ongoing basis. In mental health issues, it's no different. Yeah. 
That's very true. And that is a piece I think that people forget sometimes. Right. So then I think the conversation goes to the parent or the client with autism that is sitting in my office or admitted under my care. What are the symptoms that have driven this consultation or this hospitalization? Can I just ask you a question that sort of rattles in my head a lot? You know, you see like a lot of comorbid diagnoses with autism. You know, you see people come in, they have autism, but they also have depression, they have anxiety, they have OCD, they have whatever. Do you think that those are distinct syndromes or do you think it's all part of the autistic profile? I mean, it seems like ridiculous to have a whole collection of things that are really covered by the autism. Uh, That is an incredible and probably, I think, one of the most important questions and a question that is actually quite close to my heart, and I want to thank you for asking it. Without a doubt, I can speak for myself. When it comes to psychiatric diagnoses, I like to think of myself as a puritanical. And what that means is that I think we've all been there, and particularly parents of kids on the spectrum would be able to relate to that. You have a kid who even gets an early diagnosis of autism, then somebody from OT will evaluate them and say, oh, they also have sensory integration disorder. Right. Then they will get a neuropsych profile and then they'll come up with reading disorder, learning disorder. Then they start going to kindergarten and the teacher will say they're very hyperactive and very impulsive. So along will come the diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Sometimes if they get put on a stimulant or even without stimulant, then they will start to develop some tics of eye blinking, throat clearing, neck movements, and then along will come the diagnosis of Tourette's or tic disorder. Then they get a little bit older and they start to display some anxiety symptoms. Then the anxiety disorder diagnosis will come. By the time, particularly for boys, but girls as well, 11, 12, when puberty gets in the mix, then the externalizing behaviors will go up a notch. And then will come the diagnosis of bipolar disorder or the disruptive mood dysregulation disorder or oppositional defiant disorder for the high functioning. Intermittent explosive disorder, absolutely. I love intermittent explosive disorder for the autistic. (laughs) It's insane. For me, the best analogy that I can give is that if you get admitted to the hospital with a Klebsiella pneumonia, which is the name of a bug, you will not leave the hospital with a discharge diagnosis of cough, chest pain, fever, difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, right? Excellent point, yeah. You will leave the hospital with a diagnosis of pneumonia. Right. And then somebody else comes and says, well, well, what do you think of the cough? And the doctor will say pneumonia. And what do you think of their chest pain? The doctor will say pneumonia. And why are they getting so short of breath? Pneumonia. I think that's a leap in general we need to make in mental health for a variety of reasons. Mm. First of all, I find it ridiculous when I see 12-year-old kids with 17 diagnoses. I have actually reviewed cases where a very low-functioning kid on the spectrum for a variety of reasons and gastrointestinal issues that are very common with this population came in with symptoms of failure to thrive, not eating and drinking. Eosinophilic esophagitis is something that gets missed a lot in this patient population. 
which is a painful condition. It kind of interferes with their swallowing and leads to a lot of discomfort. And especially kids who are nonverbal and given their very bizarre pain threshold, they will not present with this pain like you and I would. So it goes missed. Consequently, they stop eating and drinking. Consequently, they lose a lot of weight. Consequently, somebody who evaluates them and maybe doesn't know this population very well opens up DSM and says, let me see what DSM says about somebody who's not eating and drinking and losing a lot of weight. Voila, DSM says anorexia nervosa. So their diagnosis is anorexia nervosa. This goes back to the conversation of viewing symptoms as a disease. Versus my philosophy is that depending on where you're at with your level of autism, and more importantly, where you're at developmentally, those two factors will determine what will be some of the primary symptoms that you're struggling with at that point in life. My inpatient unit that deals with kids on the spectrum we take kids between four, five to 21. But it's so funny, and because a lot of our inpatient admissions are due to behavioral problems, understandably. The one thing that has not changed in my six, seven years of working there is the mean age of the boys getting admitted to unit. So again, let me say this, four to 21, at any given time, we have variety of ages, right? But every time we look back at the quality data at the end of the year, that number is always 13. And the common factor in that is puberty. You'll have a kid, maybe high functioning, maybe low functioning, some behavioral problems, some aggression. All of a sudden, puberty gets in the mix and it's a completely different ballgame. And very astute parents will actually come and say that. Say that, you know, Billy used to get aggressive, but now it's almost like he has a different look in his eyes. And I kind of just half jokingly tell them that, you know, neurotypical kids, quote unquote, struggle with problems around puberty. Testosterone does not discriminate. If anything, when somebody is bringing a certain disability to the table, the hormonal piece actually can magnify it. So what do you recommend with those cases? What do you do for those kids? Well, so I think that comes back to the medication assessment piece and sort of the question that you asked was, what conversation do you have? The gold standard for most externalizing behaviors at the treatment options that we have or management options, as I like to call them, not treatment options that we have are antipsychotics. And the reason I want to take the time to clarify this is that you have a conversation about risperidone or olanzapine or cotiapine or eripiprazole with a family member. And if you Google any of these medications, the first thing that comes up is schizophrenia or psychosis, right? So no, 99% of the time, the implication is not that your kid is psychotic or your kid is schizophrenic. The treatment arsenal at our disposal at this point in medicine has shown us that kids in particular on the spectrum with a lot of these externalizing behaviors and aggression, as things stand right now, nothing works better than utilization of this class of medication. So 
I think another example that I like to give is like, you know, sometimes adult patients are familiar with clonidine and they're only familiar with clonidine as a blood pressure medication because that's what their cardiologist has them on. And then you talk to somebody whose child is in the mental health system and they say, wait, oh, I didn't know that. I thought clonidine was for ADHD. Sometimes somebody who struggled with substance abuse issues may have gone to a detox facility and given clonidine for detox, right? So again, clonidine also does not discriminate that this clonidine is being given for this reason. If clonidine is being given for any reason, it is going to do a variety of things. So when risperidone in this patient population is being given for aggression and mood swings, the implication is not that the kid is psychotic or kid is schizophrenic. It is mostly to manage their behavioral difficulties. I think another important distinction that I want to make as somebody who has worked with this patient population and something that I think I would arguably say that even with my colleagues who sparingly work with this patient population, miss. I think the best way I can explain it that I say this to people that if you and I or a neurotypical quote-unquote 15-year-old went to a psychiatrist's office for anxiety, they would probably put on sertraline or fluoxetine, which is absolutely the right thing to do. And what data shows us is the way to manage this. The problem is that when you have a kid on the spectrum who's presenting with this overwhelming anxiety for 20,000 reasons, developmentally, especially the high-functioning ones, one, you know, tend to develop more of an insight. The desire to wanting to fit in is much higher than their capability. And that leads to a lot of mood symptoms and anxiety. The problem is that when you put somebody like that on sertraline or, or fluoxetine, it can a lot of times backfire, where it can make them more irritable, more activated, more agitated. So I think this distinction becomes important. You have a 15-year-old kid who's not on the spectrum, has an anxiety disorder, gets put on sertraline, works like a charm. You have a kid on the autism spectrum where the primary presenting problem is anxiety, school refusal and whatnot. And you put them on 50 milligram of sertraline and two weeks later you get a call that the kid is extremely dysregulated, extremely agitated, he's worse. And these are the considerations that I think, unless you work with this patient population, and I think another even better example is stimulants. Hmm. You take a neurotypical kid with ADHD and impulsivity and you start them on a stimulant. Within two days, the parents want to write over their home to you because they're like, this is life-changing. The teachers can't believe it that Billy is like a different kid. You have a kid on the spectrum whose primary presenting problem is how impulsive he is. The teacher is saying he can't focus. Not You put him or her on Ritalin, you may get a call three days later that the kid is in the emergency room because they are completely dysregulated, right? And these are just the surface of the considerations, the pharmacological considerations that one has to wrestle with when making a medication treatment plan for this patient population. Do you think those reactions are related to like an underlying bipolarity or do you think it's just that the nervous systems of these autistic kids are so sensitive? I think absolutely. I think it goes back to the question that you asked, and I think I get a feeling that you and I are on the same page, that no, 
if you are on the autism spectrum, that is your diagnosis. All of a sudden, no, not because you're going through a developmental phase, so you've become bipolar. I mean, you know, controversially, just keep in mind that bipolar is overdiagnosed in this country anyways, right? Especially lately with all these new antipsychotics. Not just lately, Don. I think, you know, more and more research is coming out. I like to point people to two things. One is that if you compare the incidence or the prevalence of bipolar diagnosis, particularly in the youth, in this country compared to rest of the Western nations, I'm not even talking about the world. I'm talking about very comparable Western nations, Germany, UK, and whatnot. Mm. Our numbers are through the roof, and professionals in those parts of the world comment on that. But more importantly, I think as sort of the fad of bipolar diagnosis is entering its 20th, 30th year, the longitudinal studies are showing that these kids who had a bipolar diagnosis 20, 25, or 30 years later, are struggling with a lot of mental health issues, especially substance abuse and anxiety and whatnot. But bipolar disorder as we know it, what used to be called manic depressive in the good old days, is not one of the primary conditions that they're struggling with. Hmm. So the validity of the diagnosis does not stand the test of time versus as somebody who's worked with the adult patient population. Somebody with sort of a very textbook diagnosis of bipolar disorder, you know, that's a diagnosis for life. Right, right. For most people, you know, a good amount of them, they stop their mood stabilizer and it's either a manic or a depressive episode. It's not like you were bipolar Mm -hmm. in your 30s and then in 70s you have nothing. I think absolutely it's a function of the nervous system that they're bringing to the table without a doubt, which is exactly, I think, just arguably why medications or psychotropics in general, even with neurotypical population, quote unquote, they respond differently than the adult patient population. I mean, I don't think we have time to get into this whole suicidal ideation with SSRI business, but there is something to be said there about like, you know, the adolescent warning on SSRIs with SI speaks maybe a little bit to sort of what the underlying template is. How so? What do you mean? So somebody comes in because they're low, they are feeling depressed, they think that life is not worth living, you would expect the sertraline and the fluoxetine to actually make that better. Mm -hmm. But the current warning for adolescent population is like, be careful, it actually may exacerbate their suicidal ideation, right? Mm -hmm. So goes to show like when the brain is not fully developed, the reaction to these very powerful psychopharmacological agents can vary. Right. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about a patient who's not only a kid or an adolescent, but has an autistic disorder. I don't think I want to delve into what kind of wiring we're talking about then. You know, thinking about neurobiology, do you think that there's any hope in the future that we will find therapeutic agents that start to repair the neurobiology? Like, for instance, I've been reading about ketamine recently and how it increases BDNF and all of that good stuff. What do you think of that? I think even 30, 40 years ago, the general wisdom was that the one tissue in the human body that when damaged or is damaged will not repair itself as neuronal tissue. 
I think in the spirit, that may still be true, but we are finding more and more evidence that it's not that concretely true. Mm -hmm. Having said that, you're absolutely right. If you ask me, I look at most mental illnesses, particularly autism, as a neuroconnectivity issue. And the neuroconnectivity leads to neurochemical issues. But neurochemical issues are a byproduct of neuroconnectivity issues. Right. So when you're talking about cures, cures will have to be something that can reconnect the neuroconnectivity. If you're asking me to be sort of Nostradamus about it, then my guess would be that the breakthrough at this level would come through gene therapy and maybe monoclonal antibodies. That would be my guess. But more so gene therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think the template to look at is cystic fibrosis. Another interesting gene therapy treatment that they're working on is for Fragile X, which has a lot of overlap. Like, you know, a lot of kids, Fragile X kids, also have a diagnosis of autistic disorder. But we have a much clearer understanding of the genetic underpinning of Fragile X. And so they actually have identified target areas to reverse that process through gene therapy. It's not available yet, but can you imagine to be able to reverse that? Like if you can reverse somebody's fragile X, consequently, you know, the, the autistic features that they have will also go away. Wow. Now that is what I would call a meaningful cure. Yeah. I think there's a lot of conversation in the autistic community about this topic, like, do we want to change or fix autism or do we just want to accept it? And I think that that's valid. But I also think that a lot of these symptoms that are core autistic symptoms cause a lot of suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, that's a larger conversation about what's normal and maybe for another time. Sure. I think and that's a conversation that has no beginning or no end to it. That's true. But yes, when I get asked this question, I think the age-old wisdom of what to treat is, is it causing suffering? Yes. Yes, I agree. If something is not causing suffering, absolutely there is no reason to treat it, no matter what good treatments are available. Right. On the other hand, anything that is causing suffering, if there are options to be explored, they should be explored. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, honestly, like I know we work together sometimes, but we never really get a good chance to kind of have these awesome conversations. So thank you again for taking your time. I know you're so busy. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate you spending your valuable time here. I think it's kind of magical that we're all on this journey together each one of us with our own unique circumstances, but we're all here together learning and growing and striving to be the best version of ourselves so that we can be better at supporting the people we love. Quick shout out to my extraordinary editor and co-producer, Sam Eisenbaum. I know that there are a lot of parents and caregivers out there who are looking for the kind of community that we are creating here. If you find value in this podcast, It would mean so much to me if you could rate and review it on your podcast platform so that more people like us can find it. And remember, I am a psychiatric nurse practitioner. However, I am not your or your child's psychiatric nurse practitioner, and nothing in this podcast is considered medical advice. 
I hope you guys have a fantastic week.